Blog Talk Radio. Nature at its best is nature at its simplest. At Red Barn, we've kept it simple for 20 years by concentrating on single-ingredient natural dog treats. Firefly Willows L.I.V.E. presents Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Lutmers. Revolution with High C. Thank you for joining me today, and I'm also joined this morning for our roundtable discussion by our co-hosts from some of our other shows, uh, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Good morning. John Carousella. Good morning. And Deb Carousella. Good morning. And today I'm going to put forth a topic for conversation uh, that I came across reading a blog post from someone that had led, well, it's called a circle, but they had led kind of a workshop retreat kind of thing around this topic. And it was on the idea of living a remarkable life in a conventional world. So I would like to put out to the other people here on the panel, um, when you hear that term, a remarkable life and living a remarkable life, what does that mean to you? What would you say is or constitutes a remarkable life? You know, when I, there was something in, in the material that you sent over that included the, the statement that your work in life doesn't have to be big, it just has to be fitting. And to me, the, the a remarkable life, if I think of, like, if I'm going to point to somebody and say, wow, he lived a remarkable life or she lived a remarkable life, I think it would really be that they that they did something that 
they did so elegantly, so um, so from their heart center, right? So aligned with who they are, and and you know, one one that comes to mind is my uncle Nick, who uh, is an Italian immigrant. Um, he was a caretaker on an estate for his for his whole life, and he he basically was a gardener for his whole life, and that wasn't big work, but it was so beautiful to to see to bear witness to him being who he was for his whole life, and that's not to say that he was flawless, but he was a gardener, and that was remarkable to me because it just suited him so well, and he committed himself to, to being that. And I think, I think that's remarkable. I think one thing that that brings up for me, though, in the way that you just said that, is we often fall into the trap of hearing a question like, what is a remarkable life? What does it mean to live a remarkable life? And we immediately put it in the context of someone else, that we look for someone else who represents living a remarkable life rather than being able to see ourselves living a remarkable life and how we might be doing that and how we can do that. So I would also challenge you to consider how you might be living a remarkable life or how you can live a remarkable life and what that would mean. And I was wondering if Mildred or Deb, if you have any thoughts when you hear that Term, that phrase, living a remarkable life in a conventional world, what that means to you? Um, for me, it was, uh, it, it took me a moment, and my initial reaction was, I'm so busy just trying to live the life that I'm trying to live that I haven't got a clue whether to even think about it being remarkable or ordinary or um, disappointing or any of those things. Um, there, the question arose in me a sense of, huh, what is remarkable? And, and it, it leads me, you to think or me to think that it's something extraordinary, something beyond. And most often I'm not in a place where I'm, I'm considering that I'm doing anything extraordinary or beyond. As I said, I'm, I'm simply trying to muddle through uh, with what I got. And so the, the idea of doing something remarkable is kind of um, at the extreme edges of my consciousness. So what if we redefined that word for you and said that living a remarkable life could include simply living our own life in the fullest and best way possible of being present in our own life in every moment and doing whatever it is we do in our life to the fullest and the best and, and just owning every moment of our lives as remarkable rather than it having to be some grand thing that might be recognized by others. Uh, that, certainly, that certainly changes the, the perspective um, and it does make it easier to to understand and to bring into um, my personal um, consciousness that uh, looking at it from uh, that definition instead of the literal word remarkable and all of the connotation that goes along with that. You know, hopefully, in my attempts 
to do what I do and get through each day, there's a little bit of that going on. Even in the mundane, there are joyful aspects of, of the mundane. And I like that that exists and that I note them and I'm aware of them and I'm, and I'm grateful for them. And so perhaps right now, that's the best I can do. And that is where I am doing it. You know, I see, uh, just as, a, as a, uh, an opportunity for reflection, I see you doing, living a remarkable life, quote-unquote remarkable life, when you do your, when you do art, when you do artistic things. That felt like an expression of remarkableness. What I said just a little while ago is, is finding joy in the mundane. I don't think of those moments as particularly remarkable. I think of them as moments of relaxation and joy. And so, in a sense, they're, they're simply a part of who I am and my expression in the world, and that lends a, a little bit of, of mundane ordinariness to them. So that fits the bill, right? Because for you, it's just doing, it's just being you and having fun. Right. And for me, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah. Which is... So, I mean, maybe, maybe uh, remarkableness is in the eye of the beholder. Perhaps. And it does come back to the quote that John was referencing, which is a quote from Christina Baldwin um, in her book, The Seven Whispers. And it basically says, our work need not be grand, only fitting. So, again, it takes away that sense that it has to be some big thing versus are we simply doing what is fitting and authentic and right in that moment for that thing, whether it's creating a piece of art or saving children from HIV in Africa. You know, but regardless of how big or small, are we doing what's fitting and are we stepping up to simply be ourselves and do what it is that we have to offer to its fullest in that moment and for that thing? So, Mildred, might we hear the lovely dulcet tones of your Nova Scotia voice? You mean my, my authentic, natural lilt? Exactly. <laughs> your remarkable lilt. Oh, I have to agree 100%. Anyway, <laughs> I love this topic, and when I read the sentence, How to Live a Remarkable Life in a Conventional World, I went to the dictionary. And just to make sure I was on course, so remarkable is worthy of attention and conventional is based on or in accordance with what's generally done or believed. And I sat there and I went inside and I decided that, yes, indeed, I do lead a remarkable life in a conventional world. And before you're sitting there all gasping, thinking she thinks she's great, and maybe not, maybe you know I'm great, but... <laughs> I was not the least bit surprised, Mildred. <laughs> so I went in a little deeper, and what I found, found it is when you're listening to your inner voice and your inner voice, and you, and you have the courage to act on your inner voice, then life becomes remarkable in all aspects because you start to notice things and you start to become more present. And I've noticed that the remarkable part is that you have an increased sense of wonder and joy and well-being and meaningfulness and happiness just about everything and it fills you up so the external part or the conventional part becomes more and more non-relevant to your life so that's 
that's where I went with it. And then I thought to myself, well, if you wanted to become more present and aware and more conscious, what would be a first step? And then what I thought of, and this would work for me, is to start to cultivate a world that is non-conventional. And you could do it easily through either books or movies or people or groups. So that's where I went with that one. Well, there was a, a couple of other questions that were in this blog that came from the workshops that they were doing. And I'm just going to put them out there for people to consider. And then I'm going to come to a third question that I'd like all of the co-hosts to also uh, perhaps toss out there as a suggestion. Um, so a couple of other things to consider around this topic are how might you live out the values of community, service, and adventure? Because I think a lot of times those aspects are very much what people think of if they think of a remarkable life that somehow they have touched or changed a community or somebody has been very adventurous in their life or they've been of service and really been able to affect people in some way even if it's just one person um, another question what project might excite you and fill you with joy and i think if people would start to think about that and then put that into action in the immediate moment or in the, the very near future, they would start, like Mildred was saying, they would start to move towards creating a more remarkable existence for themselves because they would be doing something that brings them joy and probably excites them and lets them get up in the morning and, and makes them look forward to the day rather than dreading another day. Um, and then what I would like for the co-hosts to consider tossing out is a little tip for people and for anyone listening to think about for themselves is to start putting this in action. What is an action item that you could do in the next 24 hours to move closer to living a remarkable life, to creating that kind of life that excites you, that brings you joy? What's one thing that can be done within 24 hours to start down that path or to start creating that? I have an idea. Okay. Okay, as always, my ideas are couched around a nice cup of tea. <laughs> so, so what I would do, uh, and what I'm going to do is, I would suggest for the listeners if they could explore what type of conversations fill their days and if they're meaningful. And if they're finding that the conversations that fill their days are not relevant or meaningful, ask yourself why not and look at what type of conversation you'd like to be having for a more fulfilling existence. And the conversation you could start with first would be with yourself. Yeah. Something that came to me was, you know, an example ways that you would be in service or community or whatever that, uh, as examples of uh, living a remarkable life. And what came to me in that was being an awesome parent to your children or being an awesome spouse to your partner. You know, if you can, if you can invest yourself in being those things, I think those are really powerful ways of, in, in, powerful and intimate ways of experiencing conscious remarkableness. I think sort of staying along this vein of, of community and communication, um, something that I know I personally have not been uh, particularly strong at is reaching out to those individuals 
that are um, within my my circle of, of friends uh, or acquaintances. I have characteristically been a um, pretty laid back individual, and most often communication comes from the outside into me. So something that I'm I'm finding to be very relevant and uh, useful in my life uh, right this moment is my taking the action of reaching out to the other first. And, and even if it's simply a, hi, I haven't talked to you in a, in, in a little while, I, I'm thinking of you, um, just wanted to say hello kind of thing. Um, for me, because as I said, it, it's not, it hasn't been a part of my standard operating procedure, that's something that I could do within the next 24 hours, very doable, and um, it has meaning. It has meaning for uh, me on a very heart level um, because my friends and associates um, are very dear to me and I realize what they mean. And <clears throat> so my reaching out to them and not waiting for them to come to me I think is, is a very first step for me to be uh, find joy in the mundane. Joy in the mundane. <laughs> Hang out with your friends. <laughs> and I think that that speaks to something that anyone could do in the next 24 hours is instead of just saying you're going to do something or thinking about doing something, take action on actually doing it. Instead of saying, oh, I need to send so-and-so an email, stop, sit at your computer, pick up your phone, pick up your iPad, and send an email. It'll take you a couple of minutes or pick up the phone and call, or whatever it is. But instead of just talking about it and then moving on to something else, take a moment to stop and do that thing, and you'll find it won't be nearly the interruption of the day that you fear that it might because you think, I just don't have time to do that right now, versus it'll take you two minutes and it'll be done. There may be something more elaborate that you need to say or follow up on, later, and you may not be able to send everything in that one email or whatever, but at least you can send the initial thing so you've taken the first step, you've set it in motion rather than always being something that's going to happen at some point in the future. And how I see, if you type in how to be a remarkable person, because I did this before our session together, there's a few websites and blog sites that have lists of things that you can do. Well, to then cultivate that's, that action. Then that's, yeah. that's a doable action people can do in the next 24 hours is sit down and Google <laughs> how to be a remarkable person exactly. and then look and then see one. what some of those suggestions are and then say, I'm going to do that one thing in the next 24 hours. Mm -hmm. you know, oh, what did we do before Google? <laughs> <laughs> Talk to our friends. <laughs> All right. Well, hopefully that inspires people listening to think about what they can do within the next 24 hours to start taking a step towards living a more remarkable life for themselves in a conventional world rather than simply giving into convention and conforming to how the world says they should be living. So thank you very much to my co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. John, great, great topic, see. Thank you. John Caracella. Yes, nice to see you. It's and great. And Deb Caracella. My pleasure. And stay tuned. If you'd like to get a reading 
a little later in the show, feel free to get in the queue, Skype in from the show page, or call 646-716-5510. And my special revolutionary guest this month is Normandy Ellis. Uh, who is an author, speaker, traveler, poet, and she is going to be talking to us about how to connect and contact the spirit world in the style of the ancient Egyptians. So you won't want to miss that. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L I V E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with Heisey. Enjoy the show. I'm very excited for my guest coming up, Normandy Ellis, and I think you're going to find her quite fascinating to hear. If you would like to get a reading a little later in the show, feel free to Skype in from the show page, or you can call 646 646- Seven one six five five one zero to get into the queue. And I always encourage people to get into the queue early because sometimes we can't get through all of the people that call in. So the earlier you get in, the more likely you are to get a reading. So sit back and relax and enjoy my conversation with this month's revolutionary guest, Normandy Ellis.
My revolutionary guest this month is Normandy Ellis, an author, speaker, traveler, translator, and workshop leader. Normandy Ellis is perhaps most well-known for her translation of the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Awakening Osiris. Among her other works are Feasts of Light, a book of essays on Egypt titled Dreams of Isis, her book of poetry titled Voice Form, as well as her fictional novel, Sorrowful Mysteries and Other Stories. She is a past winner of the Bumbershoot Award for Literature and Grants from the Kentucky Foundation for Women. Normandy's newest books on Egypt are Imagining the World into Existence, which Jean Houston has called a masterpiece work, and Invoking the Scribes, which combines her interest in Egypt and journal writing. She just received news that her poetry chapbook, Words on Water, Poems Written and Inspired by the Hiragamas of Hathor and Horus, will be published by Finishing Line Press next year. Normandy Ellis runs Penthouse Retreat Center in Kentucky in the winter and fall, and in the spring and summer, she can be found teaching metaphysics classes at the spiritualist-affiliated Camp Chesterfield in Indiana. Aside from writing, she is a trance medium and will again be leading a trip to Egypt in November of 2014 with Nikki Scully through Shamanic Journeys. For more information, visit her website at www.normandyellis.com. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-D-I-E-L-L-I-S.com. So join us as we travel down the Nile on a voyage into the mysteries of ancient Egypt and the Shadow Realm. As we enter into the dark time of the year, Normandy will guide us through ancient Egyptian concepts of the dead and the afterlife, including two ways of accessing the spirit world via the dualities of the Akhet and the Duat. Please join me in welcoming to the show today Revolutionary guest, Normandy Ellis. And welcome to the show, Normandy. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for the wonderful introduction. And thank you for the quotes from Awakening Osiris. That was really fun to listen to. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was inspired. You had posted that quote um, when I put the event on Facebook. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just take that and use that for her introduction. So I'm glad you enjoyed that. (laughs) I did. Thank you so much. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I know and I know many people know that you have a very deep connection and relationship with Egypt. And I noticed that, well, I think that we often in the modern world are are giving a sort of a death cult kind of view on the ancient Egyptians. And yet, mm-hmm. as we're going into this darker time of year that's a little more oriented towards looking inward, and we also have the idea of death and rebirth with winter and that kind of thing. Um, The rebirth of the sun and the light is what we look forward to as we move through this towards spring. 
I feel that that's more what the Egyptians tended to be about, was life and rebirth, and not so much this un undue fascination with death itself. So could you maybe speak to that a little bit? Have you found that maybe our perspective of them and their um, obsession with death is a little bit overblown? <laughs> yes, I do think it's a little bit overblown. And um, I think I think one of the, the problems is that when uh, the modern world, we'll call ourselves modern, you know, just because that's, a phrase that people will recognize. When we rediscovered Egypt again, we became totally fascinated with opening up the tombs and, um, you know, trying to, like, pull the mummies out and uh, see if they had any gold or jewel and, you know, what, what exactly they were trying to do. And it's kind of like, you know, to me, I go back and I think about it now, it's that kind of, Kind of like baking cookies and taking them out of the oven, you know, while they're baking. <laughs> you're not going to get a whole lot and you're not going to find what you're looking for. You know, the goods are if you let it stay in the dark and do its process in the dark. And then when they come out in their own good time, then the sweetness is there. You know, so... Uh, that's just a baking cookies metaphor. <laughs> for, for but it really has something to do with that because, um, you know, Osiris, who we think of as the Lord of the Dead, was a god of wheat. And what do we make? You know, our muffins out of, our pumpkin muffins and our cookies and our breads, we make them out of wheat. We crush it. We uh, grind it into, you know, something that it doesn't, even resemble as it's growing, and we mix it with things, and we pat it down and throw it in the dark, and then when it comes out, you know, it's this wonderful, lush, nurturing, revitalizing uh, feast for us. The source, really, of what the Christian tradition came to know is communion, was that whole Osirian mystery of turning life uh, from death into life again, and that's really what it's about, and, you know, you guess we're talking about the communal aspect of things that we can do, and I would say envision and see as you're baking things for your community, the God spark that's being put into that particular uh, tasty treat, and then when it comes out, sharing it with individuals, true communion of spirit, you know, in my opinion. And I think that um, some of that approach or perspective that the Egyptians had that we might not often think about is, is seen in the way that you have translated the title for what is commonly known as the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And you say that it can be translated either as the Book of Coming Forth by Day or the Book of Coming into the Light um, I think you can also sometimes see it as the secret of Osiris becoming Ra, which Osiris, as yeah. you indicated, was the god of the underworld, Ra being the sun. So again, there's that idea of day or light. Um, so can you maybe speak a little bit to the difference in how you've translated that for those titles and what that offers us in terms of how to view that and then how those 
may be used both by the Egyptians in ancient times as well as today, how we can approach and use that, not so much as just what happens when you die versus how it's a process or a guidebook for us to be able to use towards that rebirth aspect, whether literal or figurative. Well, I think, I think that's it. You put the, you hit the nail on the head. Um, I think that, uh, we have misunderstood that book for, for so many years because the, the scribes who copied it over, you know, and who spent whole lifetimes copying this book didn't do it just so that you could have like a magic spell to take with you into the underworld. Um, yes, we'll have to define what magic means in a minute. But the whole power of copying that book and having a copy of that book yourself was to be able to read it and interpret it and incorporate it into, you know, your life so that uh, a book of the dead was actually a book of the living. You know, it's not going to do you any good after spirits already made its transition. It only does you any good if you live out the secrets and the mysteries and the true transformative vision that a, that a work like that uh, offers to you. And, you know, it spans like 3,000 years of history from the Old Kingdom all the way up to Greeks and Romans who were still copying it. And it goes through various types of uh, uh, changes, you know, as any book of prayer tends to do um, as we become more understanding about our task you know, in this life. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me is that um, and I always go back to thinking about the Pyramid of Venus because that particular text for me is the first time that we have any type of spiritual uh, understanding of the next life written down where it could be accessed by other people. Now, granted, they may have done much of that before then on papyrus scrolls and so on, but we don't have any of those anymore. What we have is this apparently full-blown text uh, that later became the Book of the Dead, which is the pyramid text of Omens. And um, it offers us really um, a look at how the uh, religion was changing from the old kingdom um, preoccupation with uh, the the phoenix and the Benu bird and and you know the the rising from the ashes and the whole um, ascension consciousness that goes with that to a little more of the day to day uh, raw oriented transformation that you know as the sun moves from east to west and we have our kind of um, daily transformation. We can also see our lives, you know, we're born, we have a middle age, we die, you know, we perhaps come into a place where we can choose again to be born, you know, and go through the whole process. But there's also an opportunity where you're looking, like that's kind of the east-west access of the pyramid of Venus, but there's a cross there, um, a channel that goes north to south that accesses what was known as the imperishable stars, the um, the stars that are centered around the, the North Pole and which never rise or set, you know, unlike the sun and the constellations which are in the equator. These, you know, were considered 
permanent. And it was there that the gods and the goddess lived, and it was there that the ancestors who uh, were ascended masters lived, and they um, held the the idea, the sparkling, scintillating idea of all that was possible, humanly possible on Earth. And it, and so for us, it was possible to make an ascension up the ladder into um, a kind of consciousness where we could download the plan uh, of our ancestors and of the masters and bring it back to Earth. And it was that alignment with those stars that allowed for a culture like Egypt to last 3,000 years because it had it gave an overarching vision of what was possible. Does that make sense? <laughs> <laughs> in a nutshell, how pyramid text strikes me. <laughs> well, no, that makes sense. But I think even the pyramid itself, like the Great Pyramid, a lot of people think of that as a tomb where I think that it's also been shown, and especially coming from the perspective you're offering, that really the pyramid is more of a vehicle for transcendence into, yeah, into the afterlife. Um, and you, you've been to Egypt many times, and I'm curious what your experience has been being in the Great Pyramid, thinking of it in terms of that vehicle for transcendence versus simply looking at it as an artifact, as a tomb. Well, I think that uh, the way that it's constructed and the fact that uh, when you're inside this this um, stone structure, when you're in the heart of it, you're surrounded by granite, which is a crystalline structure. You know, um, it's volcanic rock, and a crystalline structure, as we know, you know, holds vibration very well. And so it's like a sounding chamber or a resonance chamber that uh, kind of, as you're working with the energy of sound, kind of uh, allows you to enter into trance states while you're there. Um, those who have gone into the Great Pyramid and do meditations with sound, I mean, you can see that, uh, you can physically feel when you're sitting with your back against the wall. You can feel the vibrations of the stone against your body. And when you're inside the sarcophagus lying down and you hear that toning, uh, you can feel the resonance washing from head to toe over you as you lie there. You know, you really get the sound vibrations. And when, in my experience, when you say the name of um, the high God and bring that energy down uh, from above into the sarcophagus, it really, you know, I've had people say that they see light, you know, coming out of the sarcophagus, that they uh, actually, you know, move out of their bodies until they're brought back down. Um, it's a very powerful place, and it's, there's a, a resonating chamber above it that has, um, I think it has seven layers, uh, kind of like a, a chakra system in a way. It's called the Davidson Chamber, and some people say it's used to, you know, uh, alleviate the pressure uh, inside the pyramid so that it doesn't crack, but actually it contributes to a resonance inside that particular room. And so I think, again, it's light vibration, sound vibration, 
there's the keynote in there. And when you're, when you're inside the Great Pyramid, you, if you tone an E, you know, it, it can be heard all the way out onto the plateau. You know, um, it's the one sound that that particular Great Pyramid, you know, resonates to. Wow. Um, and and I know that there has been theories put forth that um, even things like what we call the Book of the Dead or the Book of Coming Forth by Day um, was used by the Pharaoh, if not other people, as kind of a, a manual for their own initiatory, some might even call it a shamanic kind of process during their life to then prepare them for the same kind of transformation during death. Um, and yeah. I think, and you know, I think that your most recent book, Imagining the World into Existence, the subtitle is very interesting to me, an ancient Egyptian manual of consciousness. And I think that perhaps uh, you can speak to this, surely. Um, I'm wondering if perhaps the, the basis of that book is kind of a similar thing where you were using the guide of the book of coming forth by day as well as other things to then give a modern person, uh, someone who lives today, let us say, <laughs> I know the word modern, we can debate all we want, um, <laughs> uh, but as someone living today, um, your book is kind of an access point for some of the what might seem more foreign concepts or things that they might come across in the book of coming forth by day. Well, thank you. I think that I'm hoping that what my book does is that it provides an entryway uh, for people who are wanting to understand more than just um, the the words that are inside those books. If they're really wanting to understand why those words, why that meaning, what you know, what is it about, and and again, you know. I, I think um, I almost called that book "Open Sesame," but it didn't quite work out. <laughs> but I was thinking it was like how to take a mystery, um, which is really the greatest mystery we can think of. It's how do you understand your life as you're living it right now, and what's the point of it? You know, and that once you start going through that, and you're doing the open sesame of your own life, you are, you know, accessing larger uh, portions of your consciousness. You're using underworld, you know, you're using subconscious, unconscious, you're using upper world, super consciousness, you know, as well as uh, expanding the uh, outer limits of what you say you're aware of at this time. You know, there's this whole bandwidth of consciousness that uh, um, the everyday, most people don't pay attention to it, but it's all accessible. It's there for you to use, you know. <laughs> I had this really um, exciting and interesting experience today sitting outside. I've come to Kentucky to the old farmhouse that we used to live, and um, I'm sitting here in the yard with my husband, and, and I hear, you know, he goes away into the barn, and I hear this voice. Uh, while I'm sitting there, and I heard this man say, um, you, you come over here and you get in that house right now. But he had this kind of very 
strange, like a metallic sound to his voice. And I thought, that, you know, I literally thought there was someone walking around outside, so I went to see, and sure enough, there's no one there, you know. So I mentioned this to my husband when he came back, and he said, oh, you know, the guy who used to live here before I bought this house uh, lost, had his larynx removed due to cancer. That must have been him. Wow. Okay, then. <laughs> so it's like that's an everyday awareness of something that we don't normally think that we have access to. But once we sort of open ourselves to the possibilities that all of these things can and might happen, you know, then the likelihood of their happening is more so. Because one of the things that I was hoping I could get, you know, the uh, the addiction book of the dead when I did Awakening of Cyrus, I translated it trying to not just use words but to use the tactile, sensory language, the feelingness of the world, you know. Um, and then I wanted to work with sounds in the way that poetry and chant worked with sounds. Then I wanted to put the mythology and the narrative back into the language. And in this case, you know, I'm working with other texts, like the Pyramid of Uruz, like the Litany of Ra, like the Book of Two Ways. And I'm doing that with my small version and my small translations of some of those texts. But I'm exploding it into, and this is what it means, and this is why I think it's important for us to look at this particular thing. And again, it's all about... Um, what some people would think of as magic or spookiness or, you know, the thin veil. But really, it, it's accessible at any moment if we only opened our eyes and our ears and our hearts to it. And, and especially this time of year, we're going into what's often called the dark time of year, and people will say that at the end of this month, the veil is the thinnest between us and the spirit realms. And in imagining the world into existence, I was just looking at the even the the chapters, and the the latter chapters seem to focus a bit on that particular journey or the work in that kind of darker, more underworld realm. Um, yes. Because you have the, the journey to Duat, followed by traveling through the dark, then articulating the portals of life and death, the temples of goldstone and flesh, and then Osiris is the seed. So just narrowing down just a little bit in um, imagining the world into existence, could you maybe just speak to that series of chapters and how they might serve as a guidebook or a workbook or a manual for people to use, especially during this darker, more introspective time of the year. Okay, well, I do think that um, the journey into the duat is really, as I mentioned before, is helping us to understand the ways in which our lives are transformed on a daily basis. Um, you know, the, the coming of the light, the coming of the dark, and so on. I'm trying to I'm trying to figure like as we get more toward the end of that book, um, what I'm seeing is that um, you can think of of yourself as being a seed that's being buried in the ground, you know, and that what you have to do 
during this period of time, you know, when the veils are thin and when it's the darkest time of the year, is to learn to put your roots down into that darkness so that, uh, you know, you're not going to access the uh, incredible potential of the upper world until you have really strong roots into the dark time. And so, you know, this is a good time of year to be planting yourself into that uh, understanding of dreams. I mean, that's a big thing that I talk about in that book. Um, spending much more time in meditation. Um, I find that the work that I'm doing in understanding these altered states of consciousness comes to me more when I am sitting in a darkened room in meditation and I'm in completely, totally lightless. There's not a digital clock. There's not a crack of light through the window. It's all covered, you know, as dark as it could possibly be. And um, I have to say, I live in a house now that is on the uh, grounds of a spiritualist camp. And the front room of my house was the original seance room for that camp built in 1904. And it has completely shuttered windows that, you know, um, close from the outside so that no light comes into it. And it's really funny. Sometimes I'll go lock the door at night, you know, and I'm just going to bed. And all of a sudden all the shutters will shut and the door will shut and it'll be completely dark and I have to go, um... Sorry, guys, not tonight. I'm just going to sleep. <laughs> but um, I have been working to try to work in the dark through meditation to access realms that um, my light eyes, my, uh, my all-day seeing eyes, would try to fool me with what's reality and what's not reality. And in this case, I can go into a complete, uh, trance state where my consciousness, you know, floats away and I'm just there and then I can feel, you know, the energy coming in from other spaces. Um, and I think that that's, you know, you can feel the changes in your body, you know, you can feel, uh, you can actually begin to see uh, light moving in the room, in a completely darkened room, you can begin to see that, that there's a process of energy that is like a battery that you're looking at. Um, I think that in these dark times, it's especially good for us to work with these kinds of uh, altered states. Now, I recommend, you know, prayers for uh, protection before anyone does this, and I also recommend working with someone, sitting with someone. You know, um, we have been sitting with uh, trumpets trying to um, create some auditory uh, work inside there, and we've had a few taps on the trumpet that we've heard that we've not, you know, gotten any further than that, but hey, you know, I figure I'm new at this, and it takes a long time to develop that kind of talent. Yeah. And, it, and it strikes me when you talk about like really setting those roots into the darkness before you can access the higher realms or the light realms. It's almost as if you have to do the work to be prepared to come into the light. Otherwise, you'll come into it and be blinded or burned. And it's it's that important foundation work to keep that from happening. 
I think that's exactly right, you know, and you have to and you have to do it very consciously and very very um slowly and very uh with an added with an attitude of reverence as you do that, you know. Um it's funny that you mentioned that, you know, because of the light blinding you, because I actually had one of those experiences where I was sitting in this darkened room and it was completely dark, even though it was daylight outside, and um had someone come to the door and knock and it was as if someone had hit me in the stomach. You know, I was like not ready for that. My solar plexus was, you know, vibrating for you know, I was like sick to my stomach for the rest of the day. It's like okay. Now I have to learn to put the sign on the door, you know, yeah. go away. <laughs> but okay, lesson learned. <laughs> right. And and I think that um, if people... Was, oh, go ahead. No, oh, I was just going to say, one of the things that's interesting to me is that as I've been in that darkened room and I'm learning how the energy affects me, it reminds me of the way the energy hits my third eye and hits my crown chakra and hits my solar plexus reminds me of the images of the cobra, fire-spitting cobra that's on the, I think it's the second coffin uh, of gold in Tutankhamun's chamber. So if you actually like go online and look it up, you can see the serpent spitting fire into the Ajna uh, and the crown chakra and the solar plexus. And it's amazing to, you know, it's like, yeah, that's exactly what it feels like. That's that turning of consciousness, you know. Is, is that Wajet or is that a, a different serpent? Um, it's, I think it's a picture of the Kundalini serpent. You know, it's the, um, of course, every serpent in, in, uh, is, a, is an image of the goddess. Um, most most serpents are images of the goddess, but this one in particular, um, you know, I don't even know if it's got its name on it, but I think it could be Meret um, Seker, which is the Lady of the Peak, which is what they called her. She's in she's in all of the um, uh, Valley of the Kings tombs. This uh, winged fire spitting cobra. Serpent, and she's called uh, the Lady of, of Silence or Mystery. Um, and I think that if people are going to embark on doing some of the that internal work, the meditation, the dark work that you were talking about, um, something that could be very useful to them in doing that work, both preparing for it as well as what they are experiencing while going through it is to use your companion book to Imagining the World into Existence, which is called Invoking the Scribes of Ancient Egypt, because that's going to really help give them prompts and give them um, exercises for journaling that can help to focus that work, both going into it as well as what they experience when they come out of it and how to write about it. Right, and it it allows you to you know to talk about your shadow experiences. You know, there's there are sections on, on facing facing your fears and um, uh, imagining your alternate selves. You know, so there are different things that you can do that'll like pull you in different directions uh, to see your life as a hero's journey, 
really is the task of the Book of the Dead. And so that book, too, uh, Invoking the Scribes, is about how to see your life as a hero's journey with all its losses and gains and possibilities. Yeah. And, and Another thing that, that I think is really good that I have done uh, during this period of time is that I have um, created, uh, I live near a, a creek, and I've created these little, um, I guess, henu boats is the best way to, to describe them. They're basically plywood, you know, that I've painted uh, with images of, of the boats of the underworld, you know. Um, and I will put, at this time of year, I will put images of people that I've lost, photographs of the people that I've lost during the year. I will also do any kind of artwork about things that I am letting go of, uh, old ideas, you know. And I will put it into the creek with candles and let it set sail, you know, and watch it disappear. It's quite an amazing thing. And I've, I've both seen and, and done something like that as well, and I would encourage people to try to do something like that. You know, of course, use natural materials if you're going to be putting it into water and letting it go. <laughs> um, but <laughs> finding a, a creek or a river or the ocean or even a lake or something where you can have that physical, visceral sense of it setting sail and going away from you. Um, can be very powerful. Um, I think so. And can you just give a little bit of insight for your book, Invoking the Scribes of Ancient Egypt, just kind of the format of that book and how it's used um, with its writing prompts and exercises and that kind of thing? Okay, sure. Um, I created that book because I wanted to give people the experience of writing their own Book of the Dead. Uh, because my process of writing Awakening Osiris was 10 years uh, of going through every single chapter. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to give people an experience of writing their own Book of the Dead? And so we created a tour to Egypt that was based around this idea so that every single temple where we went uh, during the day, um, and most temples are there because a body part of Osiris was said to be buried there, the head, you know, the foot, the, you know, the hand, etc. Um, and so we would devise a writing prompt based on that particular temple, based on the energy of that particular temple. So, um, like when we went to the temple of Kamun, who's the god who creates people on his, his, uh, you know, creates people in their their uh, cars on his potter's wheel. We wrote about um, the idea of creating ourselves and our bodies, you know, naming our sacred bodies and so on. And so, you know, there were different kind of tasks at each particular temple that I would give an assignment and we would come back to the boat and everybody would write and we would share what was going on. So that book contains not only the writing prompts, but the writing that resulted from those writing prompts, as well as um, some some historical uh, information about the particular temple, as well as meditations that we did inside those temples, as well as a day-to-day -day log from the travelers themselves about what that trip was like every single day. And so it's really a remarkable book of writing and traveling, you know, a true spiritual sojourn. And I was very happy with the way it came out. 
And I think it's really important having the, the writing samples in there that people did using the same prompts and exercises because someone picking up the book and doing that, it's not so much to see how to do it right or wrong versus it's just an opportunity to see this is how that prompt or that exercise came out for someone in the example given in the book so people have a better sense of um, this is how I can approach it or I see this in action so now I understand how to work with it a little better. Right, and they're very different. The writers are very different from each other. Yeah. Um, and so when I when I uh, contacted you to be on the show today, it actually was an interesting little bit of synchronicity because I had specifically contacted you and asked you about perhaps talking about the Egyptian approach to death and the afterlife and um, the, the way that they might view the, the idea of kind of an initiatory process and the transcendence and that kind of thing as we go into the darker time of the year. And you had just finished a retreat that you do with Nikki Scully in Oregon on the Egyptian mysteries, and lo and behold, the focus of that retreat happened to go into something very similar in terms of connecting with the, the spirit worlds um, through with the ideas of the Akhet and the Duat, which I'll let you describe and, and define in a minute. Um, and so, one, I wanted you to have an opportunity maybe to just talk a little bit about those retreats that you do on the Egyptian Mysteries with Nikki Scully and what they are and that kind of thing, but then also specifically that idea about accessing or communicating with the spirit world from the approach of the ancient Egyptians and the way they did it. Okay. It's always a trip to work with Nikki because... Um, Usually we we have this idea, we put the idea out there that this is what we're going to do, and then it's kind of like the it's incubating, you know, and, and a week or so before we actually have the retreat, we have to come up with, we have to download basically what it is that, you know, ISIS and thought want us to do. And so it takes us about a week of going through conversations with ISIS and thought to figure out how they want to do the particular seed thought that we've planted this time. And as we've done this, I think we've done this for almost 12 to 13 years, something like that, we've discovered that um, when we go back through the tape that we have recorded of each session, um, and we realized that we pretty much had created a book. And this last time, we felt that, you know, the book was coming to a conclusion at this point. You know, we, we, uh, it's now time for us to sit down and pull the material together and uh, turn, it, turn it actually into a book of Egyptian mystery initiation. And most of these have all taken place at Nikki's, well, in fact, all of them have, except for those that took place in Egypt. They took place at Nikki's uh, retreat center in Oregon. And um, I have to say, it's usually mostly in the summer, lovely weather. This time, uh, because Nikki had fallen and broken her hip, God bless her, she had to recover, and we couldn't do it until September, uh, which turned out to be a good time because it was my birthday, and, you know, if I had been able to get to Egypt this year, I would have wanted to have spent it in the Temple of Isis, my 60th birthday, 
But instead, I spent it with Nikki at the retreat center, and it was just lovely. Um, and I had this dream that, that kind of set the mysteries uh, on their head. I had this dream that I was, uh, I was taking a box of all of my uh, stuff, you know, uh, there's another word that I use to express it, and it's usually an S-H with a T word, but it was a box of all my stuff, okay? And I was carrying this box, and it had my purse and my shoes and my papers and, you know, things I was dealing with. I, I took it out to my car. I took off all my clothes, and I wrapped myself in a sheet. And then I'm trying to carry this box of stuff across, you know, to wherever it is I'm going next, which I don't even know where it is. And I'm all wrapped up in my sheet. I fall down, and I'm suddenly pushing the box with my head like a caterpillar going down the road, pushing this box. And then all of a sudden I realize in this dream that I'm a pupa, that I'm just like sort of inside this sheet. I'm just like melting into nothingness, you know. And um, a man comes and helps me across the street. I ask him what he does for a living. He tells me he's a hob carrier. I sort of like that because hob carriers are the guys that carry the bricks for construction, you know, so it's like this new self that I'm building. And also because it's, you know, one of the sephirates on, on the tree of life. So I'm, you know, sort of helped across the street. And I have this little sidewalk cafe moment. Um, but anyway, it was like Nikki and I realized that what we had to do for this retreat is that we had to wrap everybody up in sheets for the night. <laughs> it's like, we're going to do what? No, we're going through this whole transformative process. And we wrapped everybody up in a sheet. We were incubating dreams all through this workshop. And the people, even the people who were sleeping in tents, were wrapped up in sheets. And they couldn't talk until they got, you know, to the temple the next morning. And we went through an opening of the mouth ceremony. We went through uh, a typical ceremony that was undertaken at the Heb Fed Festival uh, in Saqqara for the Pharaoh when he is, uh, he becomes a technu is what that's called. A, a technu is, um, it's written with this hieroglyph of uh, a blob of stuff with a human head. So it's basically a mummified person wrapped up, but you can see their face. Their eyes are kind of glazed, and they're in a trance state, and they're taken into uh, the pyramid and um, left there. And in the process of three days, then they somehow manage to unwrap themselves. They read what is on the walls. They undergo the process of going up the ladder, accessing the ancestors and the ancestral memories. And then when they come out of the pyramid, they're alive. They're not dead. They come out alive, and they move down a birth canal. And it's really interesting to me because in illness, that long corridor that goes into uh, the main part of the pyramid actually has hieroglyphs written on it of birthing process. And I had realized that um, the, the text was not meant to be read as you were going in and delivering a, you know, a dead body. It's meant 
when you wake up. You are fed spiritual food inside the sarcophagus room. You go and you talk to the ancestors, and then you get the information that you need, and then you bring it out. You are rebirthed through walking through this tomb entrance that very much is like walking through the womb. And then you come out and are born into, into this new being, with this new information and this new understanding. And so we were going through this uh, Egyptian mystery uh, doing this exact same process as um, what happens when the technu goes in, into the ground uh, and is planted as a seed inside the tomb. So my feeling is that, you know, not every, uh, not every tomb is intended for a body. Some of those tombs uh, are actually intended for the transformative experiences, and I think this is one of those because it happens to be the one with the text on it. Okay. Um, and and you had mentioned a couple of terms um, when we were talking before the show of both the Aket and the Duat, and I wonder if you might just Define those oh, yes. a little bit. I will. The Akat is the, it's called the light land. Um, and it's that land where the imperishable stars are. Um, it's that land of eternal light. It's also an astral world. Um, so that doesn't mean that it, you only cross over it after you die. You can access Akat, you know, from this side, you know. Um, but it's a place of light. And it's a place where you can move around in the astral. Um, and in that way, you have access to, you know, people who are coming from the other side that you can work with. And that's sort of a northern, south-northern access. The Duat is um, what we think of as the starry realm or the inside of the belly of the sky goddess, Nut. And she, uh, she's... She is the epitome of the womb and the tomb combined because she births the child. She's the night sky bending over the earth, um, and it's really beautiful. She actually resembles the Milky Way stretched from end to end across the horizon. And she births the sun in the east, and then it, it rolls across her body during the daylight to the west, and then at night she swallows it. And the sun or the light moves through the darkness, uh, through the inside of her body, which is called the duat or the starry realm, okay, and then is reborn the next day. Um, and the duat has um, a number of mansions. You know, we've heard that sort of Christian, in my father's house there are many mansions. Well, in my mother, there's many mansions, too. You know, inside uh, the god, the belly of the goddess, there are all these places that we move through, that we go. There's uh, the darkest, dark of the night, which are the fourth, fifth, and sixth hours, are we really inside the belly, and then you know that's where the deep transformation comes. And we see these beautiful images. The Duat was carved on almost every uh, wall of those uh, tombs in the Valley of the Kings. And you would have to move through these particular rooms um, until you got to the bottom of the tomb where the sarcophagus was. But this story of 
you know, moving from light into dark is written on one side of the wall. Then you get to the darkest part of the night, which is where the sarcophagus is, and then it comes out, and you see the next um, mansions or rooms are on the opposite wall where you're moving back into the light. So that it actually, like, sort of mirrors as you walk in, like you read it on the left. As you walk out, you read it on the right. <laughs> yes, it does. And it's, yeah, it's written with a star, you know. Uh, so anytime you have a circle with a star in it, that's the duat that's the underworld. But when you just have a star, um, it's, you know, the night sky, the, the portal, any kind of portal or gateway. So we often hear at this time of year that the veil is the thinnest and um, this is often a time when people think about contacting their ancestors or doing something for the spirits in the other world. Um, what suggestion might you have if someone wanted to do that during this time of year from an Egyptian approach or technique? What might be a suggestion you would have for somebody to try doing that during this time of the year? Okay, one thing that I think would be um, would be really a good thing to do is to work on uh, writing a letter to someone that you want, that you in particular want to contact. And you can have a diviner's bowl, and usually it's a clay pot with, um, it can have like a green glaze on it, um, or it can just be like sort of an okra kind of clay pot. You know, it can be natural. Um, and then what you do is you take a vegetable uh, dye. So you have like mint or lettuce or any type of green um, matter that you can like crush and pound and sort of turn it into ink, basically. And you write the name of the person that you wish to contact on the inside of the bowl, you know, and you cast your invocation in whichever language you would like to do it. Uh, you ask the, uh, your dream guide to assist you. And the ancient Egyptians would use a number of dream guides. Uh, Sekhmet was a favorite. Um, the lion goddess Sekhmet and her sister Bas were the cat goddess were often invoked uh, in the process of asking for a dream in contact with this particular individual. Another dream god highly favored was Bess, uh, the god Bess, who is an African sort of pygmy god. Where you write all this in vegetable um, ink on the inside of the bowl. And then as the sun is going down, 